welcome everybody um back to our our uh, live stream um sorry about being uh, late one day we had some other uh fixtures on saturday so I had to do this one um on sunday uh, instead um anyway in case you're watching the recording don't really care about that so i'm still Jonas Provanen. i'm an instructor for deep dives uh, eu and i specialize in developing um, and machine learning data analytics. And with me, I've got Mikko, a very good friend, another instructor from the same company who, who maybe is a little bit more development oriented than me, at least, at least currently, I guess so. Um, and our topic for today is microservices. And um, this is something that um, a lot of our students don't really maybe understand uh, all, all the way. And uh, so we wanted to, or I wanted to, to um, you know, show that even though everybody is talking about microservices, uh, you should consider whether it is the best possible architecture depending on our actual project. And as my devil's advocate, I've got Mikko, right? So, so you're gonna throw, Throw out all of the obstacles that you can see. And, uh, it will be my pleasure. <laughs> yeah. So, so before just... you start, before yeah. you start, uh, you you mentioned that our students maybe don't know so much about microservices, but uh, if we have people on our courses who have similar background as we do, meaning a long background with development, software development, they are also against. They are well specifically against microservices. And hopefully, this this uh, uh, our presentation here maybe uh, changes a little bit. About yeah, that. it's the, both kind of um, extreme opinions are wrong, right? Yep. <laughs> it's more about the. And this is interesting. This kind of positioning talk first. We're going to be talking about microservices in a second, but just kind of to make sure um, the uh, the motivation for this. Um, kind of comes from exactly that, that, that a lot of our students, that's what our experience basically comes from, um, either think that microservices is the, the best thing since sliced bread um, and everything needs to be microservices. Or they're the opposite opinion. Uh, this could be just you know, change resistance. So, so we've always done things in one way and we will continue like that forever. And um, both of these opinions are based on not knowing enough about microservices. That's kind of my point here. So, so I'm hoping that, that during our discussion, uh, people will both be able to see the, the pros, the, 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 the benefits that come from using a microservices architecture, as well as the cons, so, so the problems that will arise from using microservices architecture. And then maybe they can place it better. And they can see that there are certain uh, circumstances where the benefits uh, way overpower any kind of uh, problems that come from the architecture. And then, of course, we should uh, think about the architecture as an option. So that's, that's kind of the, the motivation here. So for me, it's not about being pro or con microservices, but rather understanding when, what are the parameters that make it an interesting option. So, so what are microservices? So just, we, we kind of talked about microservices in our DevOps um, uh, um, show not, not too long ago. Um, and, and microservices is presented in the DevOps um, context as one of the best practices to use, you know, to get more DevOps maturity, I guess, is the, the measurement that we're doing here. Um, but, but like we discussed, it's not really that much of a black and white position. There are, are many things to consider. And in general, what we mean by microservices is that instead of having a, a single program that is running your application, um, like, I don't know, Google Chrome could be the browser that you're using to, to watch the show. 
that's a single binary. It's called a monolith. So instead of having that, we actually have multiple smaller services that then talk to each other. And um, there are a couple of um, things that are beneficial, um, especially from an organization point of view uh, from this. But um, a lot of time, like I said, people don't really understand the, uh, the, the added um, requirement that they come from running this kind of an environment. So, so I could say, like say as a, as a couple of examples, uh, on one hand, we have monolithic applications like your browser or, I don't know, Microsoft Word or stuff like that. They, they still have components within the application, but they're generally talking to each other locally and they have got hard dependencies on each other, dependencies that are, are uh, you know, hard written into the code. Um, and the microservices, on the other hand, are these individual parts of your application that are totally isolated and independent. So, so any kind of dependencies between them go via an API, um, and then we can control changes in those APIs using versioning or, or, or whatever else. And this has a fairly big impact on how software gets developed. Like, let's talk about the, the runtime separately. Let's just talk about the organizational view first. Because if you are running a, a large monolithic application, one of the dangers in that is that there might not be anybody in your organization who knows the full code base just because it's so huge. It's like it could be humanely impossible. And there might be these kinds of um, situations where you have a part of the code that is you know, uh, singled out to a single person. Something uh, that was so difficult that only John on the third floor knows how to touch that code. So don't go there. And this becomes a risk over time. And that's actually, that's, that's re it really is like that. Sometimes when you have large, large systems, and there are just a couple of people who actually can, like, you know, fix a problem or or refactor or really understand what's going on, and that yeah, is the like, problem. It could be like legacy code. But it could be even new integration code. to a system that it doesn't doesn't get used that much, and then it literally people don't know how it works, right? So, so the older the prop the older the project is, or the older the code is, the more likely it is that it has these kind of dark passages. <laughs> you shouldn't go alone <laughs> um, to that. So, so let's just take this part and contrast that to microservices. So, so with microservices in the ideal organization, we would have these fairly small teams that would work on that microservice uh, themselves. Different uh, organizations have different strategies. Uh, Amazon has brought the uh, two pizza team uh, language into the team size. But basically, you have a, a small group of people that can uh, run and develop a microservice. And now, the cool thing, just from this perspective, is that now the code is small enough that basically everybody in that team can work on any part of that code. It's small enough for our small brains to be able to actually comprehend the whole project in one, and all of the dependencies and how it works and then what to do when. So that basically raises the quality of the software automatically, which is kind of interesting, right? That, that makes life um, a lot easier. Now, of course, in, in, in smaller organizations, it's difficult to go with this two pizza team um, ideology because microservices, there, there might be more microservices than people <laughs> in, in the organization. So, so that doesn't work perfectly. But in very large organizations like Netflix or, or Amazon, something like this works in, in, a, in a great way. But still, um, uh, but still you would be. Uh... You could use microservices even if you have just yeah. a small number of people there. 
yeah, you just don't get all of the benefits. Like like uh, one of the benefits in a small team is uh, just um, communication. So uh, again, let's use extremes here. So on the one hand, let's think that you have like, I don't know, 200 developers working on a product. Whenever a developer needs to make a, a breaking change um, in the code, they need to let everybody know that the way that our code has is working is going to change in the next version. So, so like probably as a developer, you need to kind of get a manager that will then, I don't know, write a memo and then email that to everybody. Um, and then everybody needs to read that memo uh, to be able to, to, to you know, get up, up to speed with the changes that are happening. And then there could be like one department or one team there that says, we, we can't do that. We don't have enough time to refactor our code to take into account your changes. So your changes are then going to have to be moved to the next release and, and so on. So, so communication in a large software project with a lot of developers needs to have a certain amount of formality to it. There needs to be this, this kind of uh, written communication um, and that takes time, it takes time away from development, from velocity. But in a... before you continue, I, I just have to say that there, that's not necessarily a bad thing because no, sometimes that's, that's you might- you do it. So, first of all, you might have to do it, but but sometimes you you might have to have uh, auditability or traceability. What has been decided and who made those decisions, and yeah. that sometimes in certain fields that's a must. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But then but, to go to the opposite way yeah. to the microservices environment, we have maybe five, maybe seven people. Um, ideally, pre-COVID, they would be sitting very close to each other, so they could just shout that, hey, I'm going to change, I don't know, the, the logging file format to be different from before. And everybody hears that, and they're like, okay, do that, right? And, uh, and the or... benefit, and, and why that actually works is that since it's a microservice, uh, it should be, from the outsider point of view, it's a black box. Yeah, other, other... No, no hard dependencies, right? Yeah, so you can't no hard it. dependencies. So uh, it's and your, just it's up to you how to implement whatever yeah. you need to do, yeah. Yeah, and the cool thing here is that you can actually get something like this where, where you, you actually want to have feedback from your peer developers. You can do that in, in, in a matter of seconds instead of having to you know, write an email, send it to everybody, and then wait for responses that never come and blah, blah, blah. Nowadays, I guess we use something like Slack to, to kind of simulate this. So, so we can just throw our ideas into a Slack channel and then get immediate feedback um, and then do things. And then it's also asynchronous. So if someone is away, uh, they can go back to Slack and then see the discussion that has happened. So there is this kind of, this kind of documentation happening. And then of course, finally the documentation will happen via the uh, commit notes uh, when you push the change over into your version control system. So, so it's not like they're not. If, if, if you do that. Yeah, you need to do that. <laughs> oh, of course, I do that always. I I have good comments there because that's why I have I have multiple commit messages that are exactly the same. <laughs> but yeah, never, 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 never. But yeah, so so um, kind of we still have communication, and there is a formality in it. Like for example, in the the commit notes, however, it is no longer as formal, and it's not breaking the. The, the the velocity of the project right? so things just happen a lot faster and this then also makes it possible for us to do this this best practice from from devops where we make lots of small changes instead of huge changes every now and then right because we're not we don't have to wait for people to approve our changes we can just do them so then we just do them and push them into production and you know see how Actually, there's, now that you mentioned that with monolithic applications, you can and you should be making small changes, especially if you have a larger team working on the same product or, or software, whatever that is. Small changes, usually you, you break less things if you make small control changes. Let's say th this, this uh, piece of software is already in production and it's working already, then you, you make changes. Uh, 
It's just but, more difficult. <laughs> but the, 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 cha the challenge is when to push the changes into production. And with microservices, you make small changes and you push them into production. Exactly. That's, that, that gives us that's the, the difference there, or, or one of the differences. Yeah, so, so it kind of depends in a large project. Um, you, you can try to do small changes and push them to production, but then you get into branch management. So you need to kind of choose which changes to push at what time, because branches might be conflicting. So and you, you, my personal opinion is that you should not, you should not play with the branches. It gets so complicated, and you, you just, it just complicates things even further. Yeah, but if you if you want to do lots of small changes in a large project, then you have to use branches. No or you have a release, a strict release cycle, and and you stick with that. That's a possibility as well. I've seen that and it works. Yeah, but of course, not always, but it, it, there are so many different ways of achieving a good end results. But let's yeah. stick with microservices. Uh, what else? So okay. small changes. So yeah. So this was like from the development organization point of view, right? So, so there are these benefits in having. Just a smaller code base, right? Now, now, this of course also goes through the CI/CD pipeline, because, for example, testing uh, a smaller code base is simpler than testing a larger code base. So, when moving towards microservices, um, you at least should be able to create better test coverage, because creating the tests themselves is going to be easier, and managing all of that is going to be easier. At also least it's manageable, but but still, if if you have a monolithic application which is properly built, then the, the amount of testing, let's say, amount of functions that you have there, it's about the same. Yeah. But it's so much easier if you have one simple project, and you need to have a, like a full range of tests. Yeah. It's easier, like from mentally, it's easier to manage. Exactly. exactly. And, and, and but, that but way, you there don't should be a little bit more motivation to do them because in large projects coverage doesn't get very high because it's demotivating to actually for some people at least. And yeah. if you start, uh, if you start the testing as an afterthought, then it's it's like never-ending story. Exactly, um, hundreds of thousands of lines which have not been tested in any way, and and it gets really yeah. Then it gets demotivation a lot. Yeah, so there are benefits. And then also kind of from the technical point of view, um, so there are less dependencies, right? Because if the whole application has all of the dependencies of all of the different parts, then a microservice would only have a subset of those dependencies. So we get a little bit away from the complexities of dependency management, uh, you know, needing to ensure that we have a, a local copy of the dependencies available so that we're not our build is not dependent on whether the internet site of that dependency manager is actually running and uh, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and then um, also the, the actual binary or the artifact that you're creating is going to be smaller, right? So there's kind of less things that can go wrong. It's going to be downloaded quicker. The building process is going to be quicker than with the large. Um, application and, and that could, could also have an effect um, on on uh, the uh, the uh, velocity. So I have an extreme anecdote here. Um, I don't know if you've read the autobiography of Christos Silas. I've heard of it. Um, so, so I he know was what you're going to say. Yeah, I know. Yeah, he was he was the the, the, the uh, founder of um, uh, Epsecure or whatever it is called now. Um, and then he, he was uh, actually uh, in Nokia uh, after Norma Oliva um, when things started to go wrong. And uh, in that autobiography, he, he actually says that, that one of the reasons why Nokia kind of lost the game to basically Apple in, mobile, uh, in, in the mobile world was due to the fact that their um, their um, PI pipeline for the Symbian OS, the Symbian S60 OS, was too long. And he said in, in his 
autobiography. It, it, it took like a week for for the operating system to be uh, rebuilt, uh, and then it can be tested. And then that, of course, that, that's free. Right? That's like of course incredibly slow. Yeah, it, it was just due to the fact that it was actually uh, built as a, a monolith, um, so there were kind of no stage separation. Um, and it just kind of grew into that, right? It was kind of a legacy project that just kind of happened to go that way. And as more and more stuff were added to it, the, the build time just exploded. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, it's kind of an extreme example where you see that the longer the build time is, the longer your developers are working, and not in a very productive way, um, because they need to, to guess whether or not their changes are, have been okay or not, and then work. I, I can easily, I can easily see that's like impossible situation because in real world, when you're making changes, sometimes you need to have the whole product ready to see if it actually works, mm. even though how how well you make the changes and how no matter how professional you are sometimes you have to just try if this works or not like in, yeah. in real life you, you just have to try and if it takes yeah. a week to, to see if it works it makes absolutely no sense but you okay always to, waste to a week yeah to be honest it was the operating system that is working directly on the hardware which is custom mm -hmm. hardware by nokia so it's kind of understandable that they actually have to do this they can't just run it on a simulator and then be happy with the, the, the outcome of that. But yeah, that was kind of in his words. Sorry if I'm, I'm misrepresenting something, but that's how I understood when I, it when I, when I listened to the autobiography. And it's, it's, it's a, in my opinion, it's a good example to kind of show how extreme things can be and, and how, what a disastrous effect. Everybody understands that. If you're and okay, let's player. go to the other end. Other end. Uh, show or, or tell us. How quickly a change when a developer receives a, a, a bug report working on a microservice architecture, a developer receives a bug report. This person knows that, okay, this is an easy fix. I'll fix it. When is this going to be in production? Not in a week, no. but. So, so this is actually in the state of DevOps report. Um, they, they gather this information from different organizations. Um, and if you are in a mature DevOps level, which is companies like Netflix and Amazon, then it is less than one hour uh, for the fix to be, including like developing the fix, if it's a simple fix. Yep. So, so this is, and that is the philosophy that we're talking about here. So, so that there is no kind of infrastructure reason why once you have created a change it can't be applied into the production environment as quickly as possible that's really impressive and that's of course the, the, if if the fix is easy sometimes it takes more than an hour just to figure out where to start yeah, where to look but once you got your get your hands on the keyboard and, and start to fix it yeah so so but these are numbers that are published um the the reports on google i think we talked about it during the DevOps um, issue as well, so so so, but yeah, it's 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 really cool. And, and if you think about like a, a, a website like Netflix um, or a service like Netflix or eBay or Amazon, these these kind of behemoths of of services, and basically whenever you're refreshing your browser, you, you know some microservice that's in the back end or somewhere has changed, has been deployed between your refreshes. So you're kind of you're you're seeing a different version of the the website or, or the app every single time that you interact, and that that's kind of interesting. And that also shows us one of the problems with microservices, because now if there is a bug that is not necessarily um, localized in a single microservice, right? So it's not like a, a programming error that with some input gives you the wrong output that you, you, you didn't anticipate. But rather, if the bug comes from interactions between microservices, it's really difficult to find the root cause for that bug, right? So it's not only about visibility. That's, that's one part. So, so visibility is problematic because um, 
uh, we need to figure out what has happened across multiple microservices, each of which we do their own logging, right? So we need to have some kind of a, a system in place that gives us traceability. So there might be like a unique ID that gets injected into all of the requests, and then that gets forwarded, and then everybody logs that so that we can try to figure out what happens in the back. Um, but that alone is not enough because some of the microservices that were part of that chain might have been redeployed in between the bug manifesting itself and you starting to, to uh, try to fix it. So you, you need to one of the, Yeah, yeah that's one of the really frustrating situations when somebody reports a bug and you just cannot reproduce it in your yeah. test or development environment, exactly. or even in production in this case, if it's exactly. something that you can try to, you know. Yeah, so, so, so you, need to, you need to kind of check the timestamp of the request, and then hopefully somewhere you have um, all of the deployments, so you can figure out later on which version of each microservice was running when the bug actually happened. And then what you could do is uh, you could deploy those versions on like a you know, different versions API to try to replay the, the, the bug. But it's, it's hugely complex compared to kind of traditional uh, debug. And, and there's one more thing that even if you get the, the right versions and you have the right inputs and everything is exactly the same, you have, you have uh, copied the production database into test environment or, or development environment. But since it's a distributed system, highly distributed system, then it's some sort of race condition that due to a hiccup in a, in a hard, hard drive somewhere in the background, something happened slightly slower than it should have happened. And, and you maybe are impossible. It could be that it is impossible to reproduce the problem. Yeah, like just- uh, And, and it's like slightly that. easier with monolithic applications because yeah. you don't have that kind of problems. You do have race conditions with, with monolithic applications as well within the application, of course, yeah. but it's slightly, slightly uh, less complex. Yeah, and then, you know, this could be something random that is not, you're not able to even uh, redo. It could be something like just some uh, packet arrived in a different order. So it took the TCP stack longer to, to uh, get that, that uh, data read uh, and then maybe I don't know, maybe the stack used up all of its memory and then needs to say to the sender that please resend the future packets and then there's a hiccup. Uh, you never know, right? Things, things happen. So, so the way that we, we um, create microservices is that, that we always try to fail uh, gracefully locally, right? We kind of need to understand that failure is going to happen. Whereas in a, in a local, uh, in, a, in a monolith, when you're calling functions, um, you're not really preparing for the function not to be callable, right? It's like you're, you're presuming it is there because your code gets compiled. So uh, any kind of uh, yeah. things get checked. You, you might check what, what the return value is. Is it yeah. valid return value, but you, it's not going exactly. to fail because you call that function. Exactly. Yep. Whereas in a distributed system, you need to be aware that, that you, the network might not be reachable, either egress or, or ingress on the, on the other side. So that makes things more complex. Yeah. Not only from like a system point of view, because it's distributed, but from the application, like a software architecture point of view, because you have to do more and different kinds of error handling within your yeah, well, application. Good example here is the, uh, the circuit breaker, um, very well known um, pattern. I think it was by uh, Circuit Breaker. I think it was by Netflix originally. Just zoom in a little bit. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we have no. This is just code. Well, why not? But yeah, so so the idea. Let's see if we have a better. Better like an image. There we go. That's good. And then it's fun to fun to figure out if if ah. the problem if if the problem that you had is it something that you just 
accept that okay this might happen once in a million messages and then you're actually not going to do anything about it yeah that that's because if you try to take into account every single thing that could ever happen you're never going to finish your application yeah you, you kind of need to know when to stop what to do yeah, if yeah. you don't find the circuit breaker then oh man yeah well the, the idea is um i think this is the best version that we have here on the right hand side uh, sorry about that um so the idea is that that um it's basically a, a, a facade well no it's on the client side but still um so so as part of your software when you're calling something from a different microservice you do that but basically via a local proxy right so, so you give the control of the actual communication to somebody else um and that app proxy tries to connect to the microservice and if it works everything goes well return back to the results to the calling function and that's done however if it doesn't work then the, the retry logic is in this circuit breaker itself right so it, it, it starts to retry maybe uh first it retries uh, immediately again uh, what might have, might have been a temporary network problem uh, but then it starts to do this kind of uh, uh exponential back off algorithm on the retries so, so it'll retry every first, uh, five seconds break and then uh, 10 seconds then 30 seconds and so on um and then simultaneously after some amount of of uh, retries it blows the circuit breaker that means that if another function tries to call the the uh external microservice this circuit breaker will immediately reply to the function that it's not working so that way we're not creating a huge amount of of connections that we're trying to do to to, to put through the uh microservice uh, and then possibly have our client waiting but rather we can exit immediately say it's not currently working uh and, and the, then the, the calling function of course needs to do its error handling based on whatever it was um and, and now this circuit breaker keeps retrying right and then once the service is back up, then it will close the circuit breaker uh, to, to, to make it uh, available again for the calling functions, right? So we're kind of making sure that not all of the functions themselves need to handle retries. Um, and then we're making sure that, you know, if one use case has figured that the, the third party microservice is down, then everybody gets the benefit of not everybody needs to go and try try to connect to it if we already know from one hand that it's down and then simultaneously the other way around. So once we know that it's back up then we can uh, let everybody everything is cool good to go and here, what what do we do with this it kind of depends on on whether you're uh, in a synchronous or asynchronous uh, flow so in the synchronous flow it's of course good that we get that reply immediately that you know some dependency is down uh, and then our calling function can do whatever it can maybe tell the user sorry this this uh function is not currently uh, available please try again later something like that and then if it's asynchronous then the, the calling party will use you know queuing or something like that to uh uh will handle the, the 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 requests once the dependent ser service is back up so that, yeah we're just queuing those messages um and then maybe letting letting some you know management level know that the law there's a big queue now so so something is wrong somewhere yeah that's kind of, just kind of one example of, of what we need to do in addition to writing our normal code <laughs> to be able to work in a microservices So let's talk about the, the problems. Uh, uh, for example, since we were talking about network communication, then latency is one of the, the kind of a drawback what you get yeah. if, you, if you move to microservices. So yeah, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say you have a monolithic application. 
which is a complex one and it has internal components or modules or whatever you want to call them. Uh, and they are making thousands of uh, kind of internal requests per second. Cool. And now if you externalize those or split this into microservices, then you would be making thousands of extra requests or tens of thousands of extra requests per second over the network. Yep. That's one challenge, right? Yeah. So so, so latency will get added. Uh, the, you know, the more and overall uh, overall uh, network utilization, because yes. it's that, that cloud, could also become a problem eventually. Yeah, in the cloud, that normally is not really a problem, but but yeah, in, in principle. But yeah, so the if you have an easy will... to instance at some point, point it, it as a target, maybe not as a target from. But yeah, okay then, right? <laughs> no, but but you're right. So yeah, it will be added. Um, now, one of the tricks that we can do, if we have this kind of a dependency graph, right? so on the top of the graph, we have the original request from the client, and then that kind of gets distributed, like a little bit like a tree, you know, to, to all of the, the, the uh, dependencies. So, so we can, of course, the first thing that we can do is um, we can decide which of these do need to be synchronous, right? So, so then with any asynchronous ones, we don't care much about the latency we just uh, don't, don't do not let them affect the, uh, the latency of the request so so we, we are pruning the tree taking away any of the nodes or, or subtrees that can be handled in an asynchronous way then we are still left with the synchronous one and now it's, this is this is depending on the depth right so the, the, the deeper that tree is the more latency we get because the, the, the more levels of requests we have. So another thing that we can do then is try to take some of that depth and move it to be shallower, right? So instead of you know calling one microservice that then uses does something to your request and then calls another microservice with that, maybe you can parallelize that. You can actually call both of those microservices from the, the first level already. And that way, even though the network connections amounts stays the same. The, the latency, the depth. They happen at the same time, so, yeah. Exactly. So, so we, we're kind of getting a little bit. And sometimes, and, and maybe sometimes if you, if you have an extreme amount of messages flying towards some component, then maybe you just have to accept that, okay, microservice might not be the solution with that. Yeah. Uh, kind of in general, um, if you have huge amounts of messages going to a specific um, target, then this might exactly be the solution for that. I mean, like uh, if it's a small component and you, if it's an internal component instead of an external component, then the internal component could be. If you take the the microservice approach to the extreme and you're just externalize or yeah, let's say that everything as a microservice, then maybe you you have gone too far. Exactly. So, so the problem let's say is that there is probably a, a microservice and a sweet spot uh, there. Called the calculator. So, so instead of you know calculating summing two numbers in your code, you would call a microservice to do that on, on your behalf. Right? That's kind of an extreme example, but I think that's what you mean, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah. Not everything is supposed to be done in a microservice. You need to do things locally as well. And that's an interesting uh, topic that goes towards the design of microservices and microservices boundaries. So the, what is the proper size of a microservice? Depends, right? So, so um, one way to get there is this, this um, kind of uh, domain-based uh, design um, where you, you try to take the business aspect of what it, whatever it is that you're doing, the business logic, um, and then contextify things into different domains and then make those be the microservices that are talking to each other. And there, are some, there is some science behind this. Uh, there's some kind of key things here, like, like is the data local to that domain or, or does it need to be transferred? If there's lots of data transfer happening, then maybe it's actually the same domain. So you shouldn't be using separate microservices for, for, for implementations and, and that kind of stuff. But it, it is, a uh, a skill or, or an art 
in itself, just uh, designing the experience. Yeah, it's, okay, it's, another one. Another yeah. one, before we go too deep into the details of that, uh, how about scalability? Why yeah. do microservices scale so well? Well, the main thing here is that you can separately scale the microservices, right? So, so instead of everything as a single unit, you take one and scale that. Yeah, like let's say something stupid, like you have a monolith, um, and for for whatever reason, your your logging functionality uses up a lot of CPU. Mm. <laughs> and now you need to scale the whole application, the whole EC2 instance that you're running on, whatever, just because of that logging component. And, and let's say that you, you don't even use it. It only does something every hour, something stupid like that, right? Whereas in a microservice, you could separately just scale that one component instead of, of having to scale everything else uh, as well. Then the other point is, is the speed of scaling, right? So, so the, the individual um, artifacts of the microservice are much smaller, so they're a lot quicker to download. Um, let's say that you're running a container cluster, or microservices are containers. Whenever you scale, it literally takes like one or two seconds for, for the, uh, the container agent or your instance to go and fetch that image from your container registry uh, compared to you know, getting a whole big application, even if it's containerized. You know, if as, long, as soon as it is several hundred megabytes, it already starts to take some time to download and use disk space. Mm. So, so, uh, code size matters, right? So, so, uh, Definitely. Mm, there's something else regarding that as well. Uh, the scalability. Some, I was going to ask you something, but you kept on talking. So <laughs> yeah, I got you distracted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I should not have listened to you. Uh, well, scalability is one thing. Mm, smaller code, definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Technology stacks. Yeah. You, you can have separate, uh, like each microservice could be built using a different stack. Technology stack. Yeah. I'm against that slightly. Not. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. But you could, if you have a, a specific microservice that needs to scale in and out a lot, and it needs to do it very rapidly, maybe you choose the technology stack that is actually the one that is the quickest to start. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah, you could do that. You like really oh, optimize not, something. Not, not .NET or Java. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Except for 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 Java, there was this new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The quick start. What was it called? Like yeah, reason, yeah, very yeah. recent. Snap, snapshot. Snapstart or something like that. Yeah, yeah. not Snapchat. <laughs> no, it, it, so basically, it takes a snapshot once the virtual machine, the, the Java virtual machine, has finished class loading. It takes a snapshot of the memory. Yep. So there, there are ways to opti really optimize things, yeah. even from the technology point of view. But you know, I'm why uh, you probably know why I'm against of having complete freedom of uh, Im implementing every single microservice just with whatever technology, because that's yeah. basically you can do it that way. But what's the challenge there? Uh, yeah, of course you have the personal risk uh, there, right? So. Uh... Um, but um, let's, again, let's go through some extreme examples. And this has to do also with the, the, the um, idea of choosing your data store. So maybe that the data store is easier to understand and more, mm -hmm. more um, handling, right? Each microservice controls their own persistence. So you can choose the data store for your persistence depending on what you actually need. So you don't need to put everything into a relational database if that's not optimal for your microservice. Uh, and there are many use cases for this that are great. Something like uh, using a elastic search cluster for for our open search cluster. I think I should say nowadays for uh, like text search functionality instead of a relational database. It's much better. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so, so you can do that. Okay. There's still a risk there because. Maybe we don't have that many people who know that database in the company, right? So there's a similar risk to, to what you are 
your saved. Similar, yeah, yeah. So, so let's say, okay, so let's say that um, we get some benefits from this freedom of stack. Okay, so let's say maybe there is some specific thing that we're doing in, in our microservice. Let's, let's give a concrete example of what the freedom means. You could have a project that was written with Java, another one which is written with Python, and I don't know, COBOL, yeah. Yeah. or something like that. And then you have three different databases in the background. Yeah. That's still not too not too bad, but then you take into account that every Java project has a different uh, framework for UI, for example, yeah. or persistence, or yeah. and it gets really complex. And that's exactly the, the freedom what what I, I was talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Me too. So so just to give you a, say, a concrete example. Yeah. Let's say that that there is something that happens to be really simple to do in a in a certain. Language. Let's let's say that uh, our current implementation is done in Java, and then we're we're having some performance uh, issues. Well, not not Java, Python, Python, and we're having some performance issues. So that's why we need to rewrite the functionality in something like Rust. Let's say Rust. Why not? Right. So or or Go. Yeah. So um, there is there could be a reason for this, right? So there's actually a real mm -hmm. reason for us changing the framework. It could also be that if we're running creating some new functionality and we have created our small um, two bits of team um, for, for writing that, uh, though the people there just happen to love closure. They're much more efficient in writing their their implementation in closure because they're so fanatic. Yeah, um, of course. So there, there are reasons why you would do that. However, the risk then is that. You know, if those people leave the company, <laughs> then you have a microservice that is running on closure and you have nobody else. Nobody that, that can maintain is. that. And that's my biggest concern there. Or so even if the people stay there, they, 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 it's only one person who can actually maintain that. Or if it's, it's just one of project, even that one person, after a few years away from that, that whatever framework they were using, and the framework has actually been uh, discontinued, then then you're lost. And that's kind of what I want to avoid. I, I think, yeah. in my opinion, there should be, uh, from, from your organization, maybe a set of kind of approved yeah. technologies that you can use. And then those are supported and they are, you educate the people who are coming in as new people for the, to the organization, they get educated into those as well. Yeah, so so that that's of course how it works. Um, but if we're talking about the the very mature DevOps organizations like Amazon and Netflix and so on, then they don't really run into that problem because there are so many engineers working for them that like, there is always somebody who can uh, take over. And, and the kind of microservices maybe are also a little bit like like small companies within. The organization, right? So they're hiring more people into that team, yeah. or letting people go from that team to maybe join a different team, right? But but would that be an extreme example in that sense that most of the companies are slightly smaller than Netflix? Yeah, it is. It is. But what, what I'm always saying is that the all of the benefits that come from from demos and, and these things they can only large. Yeah, they can only be really uh, uh, gotten by these large organizations. Like if you're uh, a ten-person company, then you can take some of the ideas, but you cannot implement them the way that they are written, right? Because you're too small. You just there's no no. no yeah, that's, that's actually something that I don't want to go into the DevOps side now because we're talking about microservice. But that's actually something that we should always remember to. Like emphasize that, that uh, not every organization from like because of the background or because of the size, it's it's not uh, feasible. You you cannot take all the benefits. You you might want to have all the benefits, but you cannot get all the benefits if you're a small organization. Exactly. Yeah. And you can always you know, think about I, I, the way I teach it is that you know that there, it, the DevOps 
your list of things to do and what not to do is, is not like a state that you are in, that you decide, you know, now we're going to be DevOps. No, but it's more like a direction, right? So when you make your choices on how you create your development environments and your organization, then try to go into that direction uh, with the target being maybe somewhere far that you can actually never reach. So, so it's just kind of uh, the spirit, being mm -hmm. the spirit, even if you can't literally do everything the way that they're saying. But yeah, so, so one thing that is problematic that you didn't bring up yet, to talk about give me a hint. Give me a hint. Discoverability. Ah, oh, yeah. So, so um, if you have lots of services, you need to have some kind of methodology in place, um, basically a phone book <laughs> for the services mm -hmm. to figure out what is available and how you how to how to connect to them. Also, of course, the API description would help uh, a lot um, in here. Uh, so then, for that. Um, things that have come up uh, lately is uh, service meshes. So service service meshes um, externalize again the the communication between microservices to to proxies, uh, and then the proxies get centrally configured uh, by some some control layer. So so uh, that way the individual applications don't need to know how to find some specific service, but rather it's the it's the proxy part which is common for. But the, the, the service needs to know that that they need something from yeah yeah like I, I need I, I need a let's say from the user service I need to get the, the email address of this user right so, so I need to know that there is a user service available somewhere and it has some functionality uh, regarding getting that user but I don't need to know the, the, the URL to be able to to get there right so so um. Service meshes also allow you to do um, direct microservice to microservice communication, whereas the other option usually is to use an API gateway. So with, with uh, API gateway, one of the problems is that we get these HTTP requests and the handling of those takes time. So if you're in trouble with latencies, one of the options would be to use a service mesh. How much faster is that? How well, much is that? You're missing one middleman, right? So you're, the, the microservice talks directly to the other microservice. So it's oh, yeah, yeah, then de oh. definitely that's. <laughs> and then you can also use a different protocol. You can use something like gRPC, which is the uh, Google binary remote procedure um, uh, uh, protocol. So, so that then again speeds things up slightly. How about then when you're trying to figure out why things don't work? Uh... Those binary protocols are fun <laughs> to debug compared to plain text HTTP requests. Yeah. That's like yeah, yeah. one thing I've learned over the years that yeah, sometimes if if you're willing to make things a little bit more slow and human readable, then of course it's it's slightly slower for the for the machines, but it's so much easier for the for the person to actually Take a look what's going on. Yeah, and again, you don't need to do a hard choice here, right? So, so anything that where you can where you can handle the latency, of course, keeping the HTTP. But then, if you have something like I don't know, maybe some uh, you know real time IoT system, yeah, then it starts to make more sense to go towards the uh, binary protocols. But yeah, so so um, and add some caching layer in between as well. Yeah. So um, we're, we're getting towards the end of the episode. Um, uh, we will be going deeper into the, some specific um, details on, on how to handle certain amounts of uh, certain things in, in microservices architectures, uh, like, for example, a transaction rollback in a distributed system, what kind of options there are, and then also some other uh, best practices, like, for example, CQRS. Um, so we will we, be talking about those uh, later on. Um, um, if you're interested in this this uh, talk in um, in the topic, then um, the Wikipedia microservices page is actually fairly good, fairly uh, balanced, um, and then it also has some examples of uh, these uh, different kinds of platforms. 
that could be used. Uh, so so we're, we're looking at uh, here Spring Cloud, um, as well as uh, the Netflix OSS uh, framework, uh, and then, for example, Kubernetes as, as an option. So, so how these would differ uh, in their implementation of, of different kinds of concerns that we would have from microservices. So that might be helpful in you uh, trying to figure out how to actually implement microservices yourselves. Um, but yeah, uh, also there is um, uh, microservices.io. Um, this is a, uh, uh, or it's mainly, or I mainly use it as a basically a pattern repository. So it has a pretty good um, explanation of, you know, most of the uh, patterns that are being used in microservices. So you have, for example, the Saga um, pattern here, which is often referred to uh, the circuit breaker uh, pattern, um, how to decompose a uh, monolith into microservices. You have this kind of strangling, strangling pattern uh, available in there, and, and so on and so on. So, so the, some of these we, we might be able to talk about in a, in a future um, show. But, but yeah, just to let you know that this exists, and um, there are many smart people who have been <laughs> smarter than me who <laughs> have been working with this stuff. Um, and yeah, just remember that the uh, um, microservices is not always the correct um, option to to uh, to choose. So so there is this uh, blog post that I should be publishing soon, where I talk about that uh, myself. So um, it's still unpublished, but we will we will get there. Um, we're trying to talk about you know microservices um, not being the way to go. And what was uh, interesting here was that basically uh, uh, Sam Newman, one of the, the biggest uh, microservices gurus, he's literally the guy who wrote the book on microservices. <laughs> uh, he uh, actually uh, does not tell you to use microservices. He tells you to, to create a, a single-threaded monolithic application first. And then only once you can't manage manage your application anymore, then to consider microservices. Another thing we didn't have time to talk about is this idea of figuring out when to move to microservices. Uh, this kind of crossover point. Maybe we're going to have a separate episode where we'll discuss more of more of that. There's plenty of of topics within this context that, that we can chat about. Yeah, and regarding that, uh, early optimization, usually not a good thing. But sometimes you do know that, hey, this system that I'm building is going to be very heavily used. And I think uh, optimization from day one is the key because you're saving uh, in, in some cases. But, but I, because I've seen it that it's kind of stupid to make, uh, if, if I use that monolithic application point of view, it's kind of stupid to build a monolithic application just because just just because you can and then uh, transform it into microservice later on if you know from day one that you're going to have millions of users accessing the same system per yeah. hour and then yeah, it, 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 it's it's like it's like technical debt right yeah. so, so you choose to do things in a certain way uh, knowing that you're going to need to change it later, right? And so. probably a good thing here is if it's a con conscious decision that an educated guess that, okay, we should do it either A or B, and not just picking one in random. If yeah, you don't exactly. have that discussion with, with yourself or someone else beforehand, then the chances yeah. are that you make So, so any technical debt that you take is, of course, uh, a conscious decision. It's like when you take any other debt. All right. I think so, we're running out of time. Yeah. You don't go to the bank to just get money. Rather, you have some kind of a plan in place. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. All right. Thanks a lot okay. for, for uh, thanks a lot, Mikko, for, for again uh, challenging me here. Always appreciate it. My pleasure. And then, uh, especially on this topic.
effects of the, the viewers as well. Uh, in case you have any topics that you think that uh, we should handle, please feel free to send us uh, comments. Uh, if there's something in this show that you want to comment on, then that's totally welcome as well. Uh, hopefully, we'll see you again uh, next Saturday at 12 o'clock Western European time, 1 o'clock CET, and 2 o'clock back where, where Mikko lives. Till then. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye.